Welcome to Econ Talk, coming to you from the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of George Mason University. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any comments or feedback for us here at Econ Talk, please send me an email at Roberts, R O B E R T S, at GMU, that's GMU.edu. You can find more Econ Talk at www.econtalk.org.org, along with readings and links related to this podcast. My guest today is Don Cox, a professor of economics at Boston College. We'll be talking about the economics of the family. Don, it's good to have you here again on Econ Talk. Thanks, Russell. So, Don, I've been thinking about the following puzzle. It doesn't seem at first to have much to do with economics, but I wanted to share it with you. Let's suppose, and because I hope it does have something to do with economics, ultimately. Here, here's the puzzle. You're a parent of, mm-hmm. uh, let's say, uh, a parent of, let's consider a parent of two children. Okay. And the parent's getting old. The dad, let's say, is going to, is realizing he's getting old. He's going to die soon. And he wants to make sure his will is, is in place and, and everything's okay. Mm-hmm. So he takes his will and he looks at it and he realizes that one of his kids is financially extremely successful. The other one struggles and doesn't do very well. Now he thinks, well, you know, if I split the money equally, that would seem to be a logical thing. A lot of people think, yeah, sharing, sharing is good, equal egalitarianism. But maybe I should help out this poor, the poor brother, the brother who's been struggling financially, because the rich brother's got so much already. So I'm, I'm not going to split it equally. I'm going to give more to the poor brother. Mm-hmm. But he thinks to himself, you know, two things. One, that might cause some resentment between the rich brother and the poor brother. The rich brother, even though he's already rich, might resent that his dad gave more to the poor brother. And then the weird thing that I that I don't really understand, but I think it's true. The weird thing is the dad might think, you know, not only might my rich son resent my poor son, and I, I don't want my sibling, my sons, not to get along after I die. I want my there's the siblings to get along, the brothers. But my rich son might resent me after I'm dead and say, gosh, why didn't he give me an equal share? And I think it's a really bizarre thing. And I'm just mentioning this in passing. Maybe we'll talk about it later. But it's a really, it's a really bizarre thing. If you don't believe in the afterlife, why – and I think some people don't – why somebody who doesn't believe in the afterlife still might care what his son thinks of him after he's dead. And I think most people would be bothered by what their son thinks of him after they're dead. We worry about – or legacy, and all kinds of strange things after our death, uh, beyond the financial. But that's my first My first thought, is that a, a father would be uneasy about a non-equal division. And yet, when it comes to time, I don't think it's the same. So, for example, if I, if I have two sons, one who's very good at baseball and one who isn't, or one who's very good at math and one who isn't, a lot of parents would be comfortable spending more time with this with the kid who's struggling to help them get a get a, a better grasp of the subject and i don't think either son would be upset by that and of course i think as gary becker has pointed out it, it might go the other way you might want to invest more in the really skilled son so he could get way ahead do really well say become a professional baseball player and then enrich the entire family mm-hmm. so i'm curious my so two things one do most Families do equal division of estates, financial estates, when they when they pass away. Do, do parents split their estates equally? And then the second question is, 
do they spend their time equally with their children? Do we know anything about that? And is time different than money? And I'm, I know you've done a lot of reading and writing on the economics of the family, and particularly these kind of issues. So I wanted to hear your thoughts. Yeah, well, first of all, the, the, the question that you raise is, uh, I have to say you knocked it out of the park. And the reason is that the puzzle that you raise is the question for the ages in this literature. That is, the, they call it the puzzle of equal division, because it turns out that when it comes to bequests, the norm is that even in these kind of extreme cases where one son's doing really well and the other one is struggling, Nonetheless, most of the time, parents will split the uh, bequest equally uh, between the two sons. And that's puzzling uh, for people who study bequests because um, the kind of model of altruism where you want to level the playing field for the two sons would suggest that you, that you do provide more help for the the son who's struggling. Now, when you say that most families split equally, I assume you're referring to current-day America. Right. Because historically, a lot of families would leave all the assets to the oldest son, what's called primogeniture, because there was really only one asset, which was the land, Mm -hmm. and they didn't want the land to be divided up potentially for – for various reasons. That's right. But you're talking about modern America, right? Yeah, so that if, uh, you know, if we're talking about assets that could be liquidated easily, and most most families, you know, their main asset is their house, but then you could just put it on the market. But in in uh, places where, let's say, land, you know, we've got agricultural societies and land markets are thin and uh, knowledge of the farm is passed from father to son, then typically the eldest son uh, would would take over the farm. They never did a coin flip. Never you'd think, did a you'd, coin you'd flip. think you'd just give it to the lucky son, but no, it was the oldest one. Yeah, that's true. Um, actually, I was just reading a case study of uh, Tanzania, then called Tanganyika in the late 1950s, where uh, initially land was almost infinitely abundant. But with the introduction of ox plows and tractors, uh, cash crops rather than subsistence farming started to uh, be practiced. Farms became bigger, and inheritance practices changed almost overnight. Rather than leaving a farm to, say, a nephew, uh, and in in the earlier days, what sons used to do uh, was they would just travel to a different village where their friends lived, and let's start their own farm. But once land became scarce, uh, the inheritance rules changed. And in fact, in a way, what happened was almost paradoxical. Uh, as economists would think, okay, we've got new technology, tractors. Um, you'd think at the end of the day, that ought to make families happier. And in the end, it really sort of spelled disaster for families. They became very conflicted. What happened was the inheritance rules changed so that the eldest son... When you say the inheritance rules, you mean the custom. You don't mean the legal law. Uh, It was funny. What happened was that what people wanted to do changed first. And then something called the district council, within about a year or two, actually changed the law. Hmm. And what was interesting was that I kind of call it the 
interplay between biology and culture. I really think that what was bubbling uh, under the surface was biology in the sense that now land became more valuable, and as a result, the nepotism became more exact. Before, when land wasn't so valuable, I'll leave it to a nephew. Now that the land meant more, leave it to a closer relative. Uh, that's how people felt, and what the district council did was it just sort of clarified that nepotistic rule. Um, what's interesting about that is that maybe later on when people look at the history books, all that's going to be left is the ruling of the district council, and they'll say, well, it was culture, which is true, but I think it's also biology. But uh, in a way, uh, the council ruling was a bit of a disaster because what they did was they said, uh, the land goes to the eldest son, and he can dispose of it uh, any way he wishes. He has the option of leaving some land to uh, other sons. And I'm just reminded of what happened last Sunday uh, in my own house because it was an Easter egg hunt. So I have an older daughter and a younger son. My daughter's six and a half. My son is uh, two and a half. Mm-hmm. I told my daughter what I used to do, because I was the oldest in my family to, for Easter egg time, not to trivialize the very important problem of farming and uh, in uh, subsistence economies, but nonetheless, the same principle applies. I told her that what I did uh, during Easter egg hunts was that very early I'd wake up and do a when reconnaissance. You, when, you were, when you were a boy? When I was a boy, You're, yeah. you're reminiscing with your daughter. I was home from college at the time. No, I was... <laughs> Now, this is when I was about maybe seven or eight years old, okay. and my my younger siblings were, I guess, you know, my sister might have been five, my brother might have been three. So I'd do a reconnaissance, and I would just scope out the living room, and I would know where every one of those eggs was hidden. And then it was time for the hunt. And I would basically scoop up in the in about 30 seconds, I'd have 50 eggs, and then my sister would have four, and my brother would have two. Although it, har- it was hard for them to know because they were sobbing, uh, so they couldn't really count they, them through the tears. You know, tears. here's the irony. They weren't really <laughs> sobbing. They were sort of having fun. Uh, I think because of our difference in ages, our level of happiness was sort of about the same. And I noticed this with my son and daughter. Actually, I told my daughter the strategy, which is that with the Easter egg hunt, you wake up early, you find out where all the eggs are, and you grab them really fast. And that's exactly what she did. So she had 24 eggs. My son Gavin had three. And by virtue of their ages, he was okay with that. Now, later on, though, <laughs> if uh, if I entrusted her, you know, <laughs> on my deathbed with the value of the house, I said, you know, you can figure out how to divvy stuff up. I think uh, I think we could all predict how you know the battle lines might be drawn. So going back to Tanganyika, you're saying that uh, the older son kind of wasn't that diligent about splitting it up. Not diligent at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, what happened was uh, the younger sons marched over to the district council. Uh, they were pretty mad, and a lot of times the district council would rule in their favor, and they would actually rule that the farms should be divided up equally. Whether that is good from uh, 
agricultural point of view, I'm not sure because so, the optimal value, of, you know, size of the farm might be was big. supposed to be pretty big. These so, are rice farms. So now. we go from biology to culture to uh, politics. Mm-hmm. Now here's another thing, which is that uh, after the introduction of uh, plows and tractors, there was also uh, conflict bubbling up between father and son, which didn't happen before. Remember that the uh, sons used to just leave the villages, start their own farms. Now, you had a situation where the kid was working on the farm and hoping to take over the farm, and uh, that just, you know, from the kid's point of view, that just wasn't happening fast enough. Uh, and from the father's point of view, the kid just wasn't working hard enough. So what seemed to happen was that uh, uh, these introduction of these technologies uh, started introducing a lot of uh, family conflict. But the conflict... Wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're, are you suggesting that uh, the kind of conflict would be uh, the dad would say, um, pass me the iced tea, and it would be a strychnine, uh, some kind of poisonous beverage this is a moral hazard issue you're telling me here uh, uh, there was a, there were a series of <laughs> unexplained farming accidents uh, in Tanganyika at the time not that bad but can I relate the following horrible uh, thing that I read in a self-help book I suppose okay Go so there's a book by two lawyers Condon and Condon and uh, the title is uh, something like How to Do the Right Thing for Planning Your Estate. It's a self-help book. One of the chapters uh, is entitled The Grasping Child, and it's horrifying because uh, they relate a case study, and maybe this is, uh, we won't, one would hope this is just an isolated anecdote, but it goes like this. Uh, apparently, the lawyers recount that one of their clients comes in, 62-year-old woman, and says, my mother is still alive, and by the time she dies, I'm going to be too damn old to enjoy my inheritance. Life's tough, isn't, isn't it? it awful? <laughs> That's just horrifying. Yeah, well, a loving parent goes early um, <laughs> so that their children can, you know... The grasping the child. Can, uh, now, unfortunately... Uh, this comes straight out of uh, biology. That is, kids always, and any parent will tell you this, kids always want more than their parents are willing to give. I think you probably know this all too well. I, I'm not going to speak to that. What I will say, <laughs> what I will say is that uh, the Bible commands that we honor our parents, not that we love them. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps because for some, uh, mandating love is too uh, difficult, but honoring is always in the feasible set, always a possibility. It's also true that some say that the reason that children and grandparents get along so – excuse me, grandchildren and grandparents get along so well is that they share a common enemy. I find that a somewhat uh, appalling view of family life. But going back to Tanganyika, you said that they, this led to more conflict, but at least they had more to eat. So we don't want to forget that, right? They right. went from the subsistence farming, no conflict, because basically everybody was on the edge. Yeah, although there is one other element, and I'm not sure because I don't have enough data on this, but there may have been a Malthusian element as well because population densities did go up. Yeah. So I'm not sure what was going on with per capita income. 
But I like the case study for the following reason. What's been on my mind lately is that uh, in studying family behavior, uh, I think economists have really taken too narrow a view. You know, that we basically are interested mostly in the effects of incomes and prices and taxes, these kinds of things on family behavior. And, you know, if, if we think about things like bequests, we're interested in the effects of inheritance taxes, and that stuff is plenty important. But I think what the uh, uh, Tanzania example illustrates is the interplay between such disparate forces as biology, you know, because we've, we had the nepotistic uh, regime change. I think culture comes into play, if you want to call that district council culture, or perhaps it's a, uh, a legal body. Uh, we have technology uh, entering with uh, the plow. Uh, we have geography. We've got uh, history. You know, there are all these various forces, and I guess my argument is that people who want to understand the family uh, really should sort of try to venture beyond their own kind of specialty and bailiwick and and get into uh, various other disciplines. That, that's easier said than done. I'm trying to merge the uh, biology perspective with economics and just sort of weave those well, two separate threads you're together. You're so narrow. Huh? Just, just two things? You're so narrow. Yeah, just, you know, here's my catchphrase. Two threads are better than one. Yeah, there you go. Uh, before we come back to this issue, I, I just want to say uh, to our listeners that, uh, Don, a minute ago you made a reference to a Malthusian uh, issue. Uh, if you go to the econtalk.org, www.econtalk.org uh, homepage, you can find uh, references to Malthus's work, as well as an essay on what Malthus really meant, which uh, you may find of interest. Getting back to our um, fundamental issue, though, on the economics of the family, I want to go back to this time question. Okay. When we come to American uh, modern uh, data, and you look at the uh, the way that parents or grandparents spend time with their children, or vice versa, the help that children give uh, to their parents, not just monetary or but also time. What do we find? Are there differences in how people allocate time to their children or their or their parents? You know, as far as the the, uh, the time input goes, the the data uh, that I know best, and I think the data that, that that people pay the most attention to collecting are uh, time spent by adult children in caring for uh, their frail elderly parents. And the the main uh, fact that jumps out there is that uh, if you are a, a frail parent in need of some help, say if you're someone who uh, needs, uh, you know, you live in a nursing home, for example, it is far better to have a daughter than a son. Uh, and if you spend Why do you any, say that? Well, because daughters spend roughly twice as many hours uh, caring for elderly parents than than sons do. It's a depressing um, thought, uh, being a son. Why is that, Tom? What do you think? Um, do we have any? You know, there's been there's been various explanations. Uh, some of the standard economic explanations would go back to things like wages. 
you know, so that if women's uh, wages are uh, are on average lower, then there's a economic argument having to do with opportunity cost. You know, the big shot businessman is too busy, you know, in mergers and acquisitions to go care for his poor uh, grandmother in the nursing home, on, so his yeah. sister does it instead. Instead of doing that consulting project on Sunday. Exactly. <laughs> I don't know about that. Okay, go ahead. Right. Uh, only problem with that argument is that once you uh, uh, control for those wage differences, and you can think of it as just simply looking at a room full of sons and daughters that make equal amounts of money, you're still going to see roughly the same disparity yeah, in hours. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there have been a number of... Uh, uh, explanations put forth, but uh, I think you could, I think it's fair to say that you could still put it in the in the puzzle category. Um, but it's really double. Yeah, it's double. Hmm. So it's pretty it's fascinating. Huge. Okay. Uh, as far as uh, time that parents spend with children, uh, I'm sure there are surveys out there that that track that sort of stuff, but I I just don't know what those. Uh, what those numbers say. Uh, but in terms of uh, another point that I think you were driving at, which is uh, uh, how equal uh, do parents treat their children as far as non-bequest uh, gifts? That is, you know, the gifts that, that parents give uh, while they're alive. And you might think about uh, tuition payments or uh, money for a down payment for a house, things like that. Mm-hmm. turns out that those are uh, far more unequal. So, I mean, it's not unusual, for example, uh, to see uh, perhaps uh, a family where uh, one of the kids uh, goes to a private school like Boston University where the tuition is uh, 40000 a year. The other kid goes to UMass, where the tuition is uh, half that amount. So that's a, a big difference in in payments, and yet, you know, unequal treatment of sorts, but uh, nothing uh, that's considered especially egregious. It'd be interesting to see whether parents actually try to even those differences up in a, helping a, ch- a child with a down payment on a house or a or a, a relevant other you know type of transfer, mm-hmm. but, but obviously. It, it, obviously, there are lumpinesses. There's there's a lumpiness to some of these transfers. It's hard to equal to even out. That's right. The other thing that makes it tricky is that some of these, uh, you know, year in year out transfers. Uh, some sticklers might argue that when you add them up over the lifetime, they all it's even really out. Difficult. Yeah, they, they might all, even sure, out. Possible. I kind of doubt it. I doubt it too. Yeah. Uh, it could be. Uh, you know, there's another argue- there's another issue that you mentioned. Way at the beginning that I thought was kind of uh, 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 had an interesting possibility, which is you, you mentioned that uh, there might be some resentment on the part of the richer son uh, who felt he was treated unfairly, and you, me- you mentioned that the, there might be some unease on the part of the father who um, cared about his legacy. In fact, you mentioned earlier, before we even started this podcast, you're talking about Thomas Jefferson and Monticello and how much work he put into kind of building his legacy. Uh, so it's it's obvious that, that that's part of human nature that people care about that. Yeah, I was, I was just there, and I, Don and I were talking about this before our podcast officially started, 
Here's a guy who cared deeply about what history thought of him, kept all his letters mm-hmm. uh, after a certain point because he realized he was going to be an important person, made copies of them, invented a device that would help him make copies in uh, in around 1800 or 17-something, which was uh, pretty uh, diligent of, of uh, on his part, and cared deeply of what his legacy would be. And he's gone now. Uh, you can you can visit his grave. He was not a rel- – I don't think he was a – to be careful here, I, I don't want to. I don't know whether he was a religious man or not. In terms of, I know he was not an, a uh, much of a practicing religious person. But we know that there are a lot of people who um, who don't believe in God or who profess not to believe in God, who think that this life is all there is, but who do care deeply about what the world thinks of them after they're in the ground. Mm-hmm. Strange thing. Yeah. So it is interesting. The, but the the the. Thing that I wanted to kind of go back to that you left out um, concerns the poorer kid and how that poorer kid might react to the unequal treatment. And the analogy that came to my mind is the following: It's common these days. Uh, I don't know if you encounter this much. Um, that uh, in this uh, sort of new regime of uh, learning disabilities and so forth, that uh, around exam time, uh, a student might be diagnosed with some sort of a learning disorder and therefore might uh, uh, have some letter from an associate dean requiring uh, extra time uh, to to use on a midterm exam, let's say. Now, what I've found is that uh, this sort of stuff often puts uh, students in kind of a difficult position, and I could really understand uh, the the sort of ambivalence a student might feel about this. On the one hand, uh, I think a lot of students feel like, well, you know, if I'm going to be competing with my peers, I just want to take the same amount of time as everyone else. On the other hand, it's like, gee, I have this official letter from the dean saying I'm entitled to some extra time and, uh, you know, kind of feel like a fool if I don't take advantage of it. I I think I would feel quite conflicted uh, were I, you know, put in that category. But the main thing is that uh, it's almost universally the case that I think students feel a little bit embarrassed about the situation, and when they do take the extra time, they certainly don't want uh, it to be public knowledge. And so uh, what I try to do is uh, accommodate those feelings and say, you know, come back to my office. Let's not make a big deal out of it. We quietly uh, take the extra time. Nobody needs to know. It's not their business. Um, The thing about a bequest is that, like the extra time, you know, it sort of is a public event, and... Uh, you know, even siblings sometimes are fairly, you know, close to the vest as far as how much they earn. Now, if the poorer person, um, you know, is kind of uh, has issues of pride connected with their career, how much money they make, if all of a sudden, it, uh, you know, a lawyer is reading the will and and it comes out saying, well, due to the difficulties in so-and-so's career, I give them Twenty thousand extra dollars. It just might be really embarrassing for the uh, person who's earning less, um, much in the same way as if I 
made a public announcement to a class about you know Joe Smith needing extra time on the exam. So, well, do I you mean, think? But do you think it would be different if it were twenty million dollars? Yeah, <laughs> you know, for hey, twenty million, okay. 20 million bucks, bring it on. Yeah, give me extra time. You know, A plus on the exam. Yeah, I'll take the extra time. You tell anybody you want. Let's put it in the school paper. Uh, <laughs> no, but that, that's an interesting point about the embarrassment. Uh, what's fascinating, of course, is another area of, of you know inequality that we're, we've we've not talked about, which is genetic inequality. Mm-hmm. It's not just perhaps that this one son had a bad break in in his career. It can easily be the case that you know one son is simply less gifted. Right. Intellectually, mentally, athletically, physically, there's so many different uh, aspects to life, and and of course, not all children of the same parents turn out equally accomplished or successful or uh, happy. You know, right. you don't, we don't even have to talk about financial differences. You could have a miserable child that you decide to curse with a large bequest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, or or bless them, depending on you know how it turns out. I think the other thing is that uh, it may also be uh, deeply ingrained in human nature, some sort of idea of fairness, which may not even make a whole lot of sense because, uh, 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 you know, maybe the the true uh, metric for fairness is opportunities for consumption or utility, and... uh, that might dictate that, yeah, you give more money to the poorer kids so that they both can, you know, drive the same kind of car. And uh, yet uh, people's ingrained definitions of fairness is, no, you know, there's a pie on the table, split it down the middle. That's uh, that's what we regard as fair. Yeah, our children, I'm sure it's been your experience too, as much as, it's certainly been my experience, as much as I labor to excise the word fair from their vocabulary, they uh, are always eager to bring it up about yeah. about outcomes and not how much time people put into in effort or other things. Uh, they want it to be fair, and fair to them means equal, mm-hmm. uh, same number of baseball cards, uh, the same number of uh, cookies, even if one kid just came from a birthday party and had a big piece of chocolate cake. It's a very interesting uh, question as to whether that's uh, hardwired into our brains. Yeah. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if... In some sense, it were, and of course, in the family, uh, there are worse things than being obsessed with fairness. Uh, I think one of the interesting questions is what happens when you extend it beyond the family, uh, that egalitarian impulse. But in the family, what's perhaps different among many things, one of the things that's different is that the incentive effects are a little more complicated and in some ways, I guess, simpler. That's a lovely expression. They're complicated and simpler at the same time. <laughs> but here's what I was thinking. Give me your reaction. Uh, if you have a rich parent and you have two children, one successful and one not, if the poor child knows the will in advance mm-hmm. that it's not equal division, uh, it certainly discourages the poor child from, from making an effort to to get uh, ahead financially, yeah. But most parents, although I'd like to hear your comments on this, I would think most parents keep their wills somewhat uh, private, and so the incentive effects, since it's a one-time, one-shot game, are not so important. On the other hand, I had a friend who uh, I have a friend whose father told me. I don't think it's true, but it's a lovely thought and maybe of practical use to some of our listeners. He kept his will in a loose-leaf notebook. And he would just rearrange the pages. Uh, you know, each child got a, had his own uh, divider. And if a kid misbehaved, he'd just shuffle the pages wow. around. Now, I think he was being facetious, but I, I thought that was amusing. 
But you've done some thinking, I know, about um, the way that we've been talking about the grasping child earlier. They're also the uh, the manipulative parent. You want to? We have got about yeah, so we had about five minutes. So can yeah, you say so something about there's that? Been a, there's been a few. Uh, there's there's been some research on um, how parents might be concerned about incentives and how they might actually use bequests uh, to manipulate children. There's a pretty well-known paper by uh, Doug Bernheim, Andre Schleifer, and uh, Larry Summers called the strategic bequest motive. And the idea is that parents uh, would use a bequest uh, in order to get their kids to visit them. Uh, and uh, so that's one and how would they do that? Uh, what they the the idea is that uh, uh, parents like to have attention and companionship from their kids, and so they would they would amass an estate in order that uh, to induce their children to visit them. Now, well, I want to come to that. In, I want to get at that induce thing. How, what would is it? It's really the loose leaf notebook, Rit. Uh, yeah, exactly, exactly. And so uh, uh, you might. Now, whether or not you believe that, uh, let me just, uh, let me just argue their case for you, okay? Uh, uh, one piece of evidence from the paper that makes the idea compelling is the following. Um, it takes, uh, more than one child to make a contest out of this, right? So, in other words... Right, you in, want some in, jockeying for position. Yeah, right. So, for uh, this should only work for multiple child families where you see a positive relationship between visits and the, uh, the estate. And that's what they find. They find that for uh, families with uh, only one child, there's, there's no relationship. But once you have a, kind of a contestable uh, bequest, more than one kid, that's when you get the positive relationship. Could um, be. I guess, you know, going back to our earlier discussion, um, we talked earlier about how parents love their children really unconditionally, I think, yeah. in most cases. Children often struggle to love their parents and sometimes to even tolerate them. Uh, so if you think of this bequest motive, what you're really saying is that People, elderly parents, are buying their children's love, which of course can't be done. They're buying mm-hmm. their they're buying their children's time, yeah. which which is really depressing because it says they're they're promising their kids money so that they'll come visit them. But of course, they could just hire someone to come visit them, which of course some old old people do. They hire that's right na- maids and and yeah. assistants. I guess the argument would be to, it'd have to be a little more complicated. You'd have to argue that. If you're going to hire someone, it's better to hire your children because then your peers in the nursing home will think that maybe they actually like you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of a pride argument. Whereas it'd probably be cheaper just to hire a, a paid, a liter- explicitly hire them. Could be. You know, can I just uh, offer a silver, a biological silver lining? Yeah, because otherwise, we're, you know, I, I hate it when people think economics is just about money. Yeah. And I so, really don't like the idea that we think that parents, uh, the reason that parents give money to their kids is to buy their love. Yeah. So, <laughs> so um, actually, you know, I've met your kids. They're really sweet. And I don't think this would ever happen to you, but, but I, can, I, I can imagine families where this would happen and, 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 and parents would be devastated. And I would, I would say to them, please don't, 
I know this is going to kill you, but I, I hope you won't feel bad. So, so this I can imagine happening in many families. I can I can predict it with uh, a lot of confidence. Other than yours or mine? Okay, go ahead. Other, well, yeah. So, so, <laughs> so I can predict the following: um, a daughter reaches the age of uh, fifteen, and she says to her mother or father, "I hate you. I wish you were dead. Uh, I would. I, I want out. You know, I wish I could just leave now." And you know that's horrible thing for a parent to hear. Has it ever been Absolutely said? Horrible. Has a 15-year-old huh? has a 15-year-old ever said such a thing? Uh probably happening right I think it's happening right now, probably thousands of times. You know, so I mean, adolescence is rough for parents. It's it's uh sort of rough for kids. So so what I uh what I tell parents is that uh try to get a little perspective on it. I call it the uh quality grandchild program and here's how it works biologically adolescence is synonymous with home leaving and here's the idea who in their right mind would ever leave a place where you have everything provided for you for free and we're talking high quality stuff when i was a kid i had my own room i had my own bathroom i had home cooked meals Provided for me every night. Hey, don't forget the laundry. Never laundry. <laughs> I had to. I never ever had to wash a dish. I, you know, use of a car. Never had to pay for gas. Who would leave such a wonderful situation? You would have to be crazy. And so, and yet you have to leave in order to prevent inbreeding. So what happens? Nature steps in and makes you crazy. That's what adolescence is. The unleashing of the hormones. The unleashing of the hormones, and it is an adaptive thing. It's a temporary episode (laughs) of craziness, and what it does is it impels you in a completely irrational way to hate your parents or at least think they're boring. So that parents, if they do the best, the absolute best job that they can, the very best they can be is boring, <laughs> and yet and mocking, boring and mocking. I that's think would right. be the key uh, of their children. And yet the 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 outcome is really happy landings. The child leaves home, establishes their own household, gets their own job, and forms their own family, and in the end, starts a new household and the wheel of life continues to turn. Because think about what happens otherwise. Uh, without adolescents, they never leave. Yeah, no doubt about that. No grandchildren. Yep. It's just the quality grandchildren program. Uh, on that fascinating note, <laughs> we will uh, take leave of this Econ Talk podcast. Thank you for listening. You can find more podcasts like this at, well, maybe not quite like this, but like this at www.econtalk.org. Thanks for joining us.